Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A place where tourists are flocking to Block Island, whether there's a mask mandate or not. The town of New Shoreham took matters into their own hands late last week, putting in place an indoor mask mandate that started at noon on Friday. That's just as people started arriving for Labor Day weekend. Masks are currently required regardless of vaccine status, and those who violate the ordinance could face a $50 fine. Face coverings are already a rule for students and teachers in Rhode Island, and masks are also required in all state buildings under orders from the governor. It's impossible to ignore the mounting threat of climate change. From rising sea levels to a staggering uptick in extreme weather events, the health and safety of our planet is a dire risk. Today, I hand over the reins to my colleague, Brian Amaral. Brian covers all things coastline here at Globert Island, and he sat down with Brown University professor Baylor Fox Kemper to learn what our growing climate crisis means for the ocean state. Fox Kemper is the lead author of a new United Nations climate report, and the two take a look at what we can do here in Rhode Island to keep climate outcomes from becoming even worse in the future. Brian's conversation with climate researcher Bela Fox Kemper after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org slash weekly. That's ripbs.org slash weekly. Climate change is widespread, rapid, and intensifying. That's the headline takeaway from the most recent report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Our guest this week, Baylor Fox Kemper, was one of the coordinating lead authors of that report. He lives in Providence and teaches Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences just up the hill at Brown University. He uses computer modeling to look at the oceans. The news on that front is downright scary but there's still a chance to make a difference. Professor Fox Kemper, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. 
So you were a, a lead author of the chapter dealing with oceans, the cryosphere, and, and, and sea level rise in this new, new UN report. If we continue on the trajectory that we're on, what kind of ro- reality is Rhode Island looking at in the year 2100? So the, the important thing to keep track of is in the near term, even if we were to reduce our amount of greenhouse gas emissions, sea level is really catching up to what we've already done. And so there's some committed change, that's the word that we use to say something that's already based on past emissions, that's due by 2050 or so. And that's approaching a foot of sea level rise. Um, By the time we get to 2100, then our emissions make a bigger difference. And in addition, the sea level goes up a bit more. So maybe one to two feet by 2100, if we radically reduce our emissions from what they are now, more like two to three feet at 2100 if we don't. And we can't rule out that there could be changes in Antarctica that might lead to up to as much as six feet of sea level rise by 2100. But even at 2100, that won't be the end of the sea level rise story. It's gonna continue rising to 2300 and you know on for millennia because we've changed the system pretty dramatically with the carbon we've already emitted. What is, you know, a foot of sea level rise, two feet, three feet? What does that mean practically for communities in Rhode Island, especially coastal communities? Yeah, so it's important. I guess there are a couple of things that are important to think about. So one, we're not going to really see that foot. That's not going to be the first sign that things are changing. Instead, what we'll see is the likelihood of a um, flooding event going up. So along with the foot or two feet of sea level rise by 2100, we expect the one in a hundred year flood event to come annually in most places in the world. And that's true for Rhode Island as well. That will definitely be noticeable even before the one or two feet reaches the level where it's you know in your basement or whatever. We'll notice that those flood events happen first. Um, in addition, this is one or two feet of sea level rise in the vertical that we're thinking about, but that means changes on the beaches of you know, 10, 20 feet of horizontal difference distance on the beach. So when we think about where the high tide line is, it's gonna be shrinking back towards our structures that we have built. Those are gonna be changing on a, within our lifetime in an appreciable way. I, I think that the, by 2050, which is the difference between uh, 1992 and 2021 is the same from 2021 to 2050. So that just gives a sense of what sort of timeline we're looking at here. We're going to see some appreciable sea level rise on the order of what? What are are the models saying? So it's around 9 to 11 inches by 2050 is what what the range is. Um, And that's quite a bit when we think back that it's only been um, about six inches or so that we've recorded since 1900. So we're seeing faster sea level rise. It is accumulating more and more as we get to the um, seeing the impacts of all the warming that we've been doing over this from the second half of the 20th century on in terms of our emissions of carbon dioxide. So even if we were to reduce all, stop all of our emissions today, we still would expect to see that sea level rise. And so, uh, you know, I, I downloaded the report, the full report, not just the summary, and a PDF came up on my computer screen that was 4,000 pages long. Uh, this is obviously very technical. There's a lot of charts. So there's there's going to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of details here, but one thing that struck me as I went through more of the summary was, and I don't know if this is kind of widely appreciated that sea level rise is actually, in part, about fifty percent of it is just because the ocean 
it's getting warmer and warmer water is expanding and it's and that's a, a key contributor to sea level rise. What does that mean for our future that the that the oceans are getting warmer? Yeah, so well there are two points that I guess I'd like to touch on from that. One is yes, there is a summary. It's only about 10 pages long. I hope everybody goes and reads it. Secondarily, there's an interactive atlas so you can go click on the point for Rhode Island and see what's coming for Rhode Island not only in terms of sea level but also precipitation changes, temperature changes, extreme weather, all of that is projected for our local um, region within this IPCC report. But the second part, so when we think of the sea level rising, you can do that by making the ocean more voluminous, expansion of the ocean, which largely has to do with the heating of the ocean, or you can do it by adding more water to the oceans, which is what happens when we melt glaciers on mountaintops or ice sheets in Antarctica, ice sheets in Greenland. That ice melts and ends up adding water to the oceans. Um, so that has a local impact on ecosystems. That's one part of the story. Then the other part of the story with the oceans is the oceans are taking up carbon. Um, and they, when the oceans take up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, it acidifies the ocean. It makes them more acidic. So the ecosystems not only have to contend with warmer temperatures, they also have to contend with more acidic ocean waters. Yeah. So, you know, we're obviously the ocean state, 400 miles of coastline. Uh, it's a huge part of our economy. It's a huge part of our culture. Does it also make us uniquely vulnerable in some ways to sea level rise and climate change? Yeah, we're... We have some advantages and some disadvantages. We obviously have a lot of coastline, so we're, you know, Colorado has a lot less to worry about from sea level rise than we do. But on the other hand, we have relatively steep shorelines um, and relatively rocky shorelines because of the history of how the glaciers dropped features like, you know, uh, the cliff walk in Newport. That protects us to some degree against some of the more extreme wave and storm surge conditions that we might be worried about as part of the sea level rise impacts. Um, so if you think of places that have a lot of landfill, um, those places probably weren't overfilled much above the sea level when they were built. So Cambridge and Boston, Boston's Back Bay, um, Cambridgeport are really lower than a lot of locations in Rhode Island for that reason. Whereas here, you know, we have the hurricane barrier for Providence downtown, which does protect us, at least during those extreme events, which will be the beginning of the signature of sea level rise. Um, and we have a lot of natural geology that helps us as well. That doesn't mean that we're not in trouble. It doesn't mean that our salt marshes in particular are not getting squeezed out of existence. So there are a lot of changes to both the built infrastructure, the human side, and our local ecosystems that we should be watching. Yeah, I think when this report first came out and we spoke about it, you were telling me that there were some really drastic measures we might have to take to protect our coastlines. Tell me a little bit about that, to, to become more resilient uh, in, in the face of sea level rise. What's that going to look like potentially? Yeah, I mean, this is where uh, I guess as a citizen rather than a scientist, I mean, I, have, I think about what that looks like for me, and it really comes down to what we value about our shorelines. I mean, I think we all agree that the shoreline is one of the best parts about Rhode Island, and that part we all agree on. But then is, is it the structures that we've built on the shoreline that are the most important thing to save? Is it the public access to the shoreline that's the most important thing to save? Is it the ecosystems that are the most important things to save? Is it the shell fishery that's the most important thing to save? So we really need a kind of wide-ranging conversation 
to balance all of those different interests because we could do things like build seawalls, but when you build seawalls, they may protect the structures behind them, but they tend to destroy the beach. They tend to uh, change the way that salt marshes work. They tend to change the way that the currents flow along the beach, which may make it impossible to swim or surf or sail near shore. So there are positive and negative consequences of the different choices we might make. Um, as you might expect, places like the Netherlands are already dealing with this. They have developed a lot of um, more kind of green solutions to not hardening, but making a more resilient coastline that involves both natural protection and some human protection, you know, hardening in certain places. The com that kind of combination would be a great thing to start having conversations about whether it works in our location and how we would go about doing it. This is a, a very complicated political set of questions and really will draw on and challenge all of our values and community structures. You, you mentioned Charleston. I was down there right as Henri, Tropical Storm Henri was coming and just those houses along Charleston Beach Road just seemed like they, they felt like sitting ducks because you could just see the waves were crashing in very hard and, and just seemingly very close. But speaking of Tropical Storm Henri, do you think that we are on an everyday basis seeing already the effects of climate change in these particular events? So some of these events, absolutely we are. And what we typically talk about is what I mentioned before is an increase in likelihood. So heat waves were predicted in the very first IPCC report to be increasing in likelihood a lot of the heat waves we've seen now would have been impossibly um, uncommon without the additional impacts of global warming. So you think about the the heat dome event over the Pacific Northwest. No one saw saw that coming because it's such an, a rare event. But that kind of event is much more likely under the effects of of warming of the whole Earth system. Similarly, sea level rise, storm surge. All of that gets added on top. So while Henri may or may not have been affected by, by um, sea level rise, for sure, the storm surge we got added onto a sea level that already had some sea level rise in it. We got very lucky with Henri's arrival that it was not at high tide. It was a little bit after high tide that we saw the largest storm surge. But imagine if we had another foot and a half because of sea level rise on top of that, that would have made that relatively mild storm a three-foot storm surge event. That kind of uh, multiplication of the risks is something that um, is part of the story to think about. Uh, it's really hard to talk about this and not sort of fall into despair. Uh, it, you know, you study this every day, you run computer models, and it must just spit back these answers to you that are that are really scary. Um, is is there, you know, do you think that we have a fighting chance of turning climate change around? I I do. And I and I guess we have to be careful what we what we mean by that, because as we've said, some pieces of this story are already committed. But I think one of the new breakthroughs topics for discussion in this, in this new report is what happens after we reach zero effective emissions of carbon. And it turns out that the temperature stabilizes much faster than we might have guessed. And so we only get a small overshoot and then we settle down to a temperature. Some part of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere actually goes down a little bit after we stop emitting as it's taken up by the oceans. That may mean ocean acidification, but that also means that the intensity of global warming slows down doesn't rewind us back into the past, so we don't go back to the pre-industrial temperatures, 
right away. That will take hundreds or thousands of years. But it means that our actions really have a fast impact on those changes we see. The grim part is changes we're seeing at this, you know, 1.1 degrees C level of warming to heat waves and floods and droughts. If we stabilize at 1.1 degrees by stopping our emissions, those don't go away. What we have a lot of control over is how far beyond one and a half degrees will go. One and a half degrees is pretty well locked in now, but whether we go to two degrees and stop or whether we stop quite near one and a half or whether we go to four degrees, which is possible given the amount of known fossil fuel resources within this century, that is a big range and everything gets more dangerous and as we get to higher And it makes a huge difference, levels. right? Just as a practical level for people who are alive today who will be alive when these consequences are happening, right? Absolutely. I mean, so the impact, the kinds of impacts we see, heat waves, floods, droughts, all of those get more likely and more intense as we go to those higher and higher temperature levels. I, I want to end on sort of, a, you know, a, not a hopeful note, but a note about what we can do. I, I know as a researcher, uh, you're looking at what is happening, but as a Rhode Islander, how do you think we should respond to it? Well, I think there are a couple of different things we can do. We can all take care of our own personal footprint. I think everyone knows what that means. That's, you know, driving less, more fuel-efficient vehicles, changing the thermostat in your house, switching to solar power to drive your house, which can be done without putting panels on the roof these days. That's a great thing to think about. All of those are personal choices, but as we might have seen from the pandemic, we took all of those personal choices. We stopped going anywhere and that was a relatively modest blip in the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We need sustained efforts of that level. And that really means we need to talk to our government officials. We need to talk to our communities. We need to be given more choices so that as a group, we can move toward a much cleaner energy and transportation future. And if we can get there, that's a big way of what, that's a big hunk toward what we need to do. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Professor Fox Kemper. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks to Brian Amaral for that interview. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. Amanda Milkovitz has the scoop on Providence Mayor Jorge Lorz's decision to appoint a city employee with no formal law enforcement training as a new police major. It's the first time in recent memory that a civilian has been put in a command staff position in the Providence Police Department. My colleague Alexa Gagas investigates allegations of sexual misconduct and grooming at the Artist Exchange, a nonprofit arts collaborative for children in Cranston. And check out Brian Amaral's report on the ongoing blood shortage in the state and how it may be affected by rates of violent crime. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? 
Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.